Thank you to our musicians and singers. Thank you to this choir, all of you who sing to the glory of God. Thank you, Carlos, for leading us today. It's good to worship the Lord together. I, I'm reminded again today that we live our lives at the nexus, really at the cataclysmic collision of joy and pain. I found myself on Monday uh, after seeing my father this weekend. He came down for one of my nephew's graduations, and I saw him, and he made his way up to McKinney, and he, some of you saw the picture on Facebook. I won't bore you with it this morning, but he held his 10th great-grandchild, and that's my grandson, Thomas. And looking at that picture this week, I was reminded that uh, Thomas at this point in his life doesn't know that my dad uh, was that served our country during the Vietnam conflict and uh, he doesn't know that he was a veteran and um, and I find myself profoundly grateful that dad came home I remember as a boy in Bastogne Belgium our family visited one of the American cemeteries in Belgium why is there an American cemetery in Belgium with rows and rows of headstones for our soldiers well because of the Battle of the Bulge but then when I came here I met B.O. Wilkins who fought in the Battle of the Bulge and I found myself grateful that B.O. came home on this Lord's Day we rem we remember and proclaim the price that Christ paid for our sins and not a moment too soon right uh, this week has been stranger than an episode of stranger things it's been odd and weird and after the joy of seeing my dad and my grandson then um, to see the brokenness in our world I saw a meme this week where else on Facebook and uh, the guy at the furniture store told me did you see this uh, the sofa could seat five people without any problems. Then it occurred to me, I don't know five people without any problems. <laughs> Everybody I know has got problems, and uh, we, certainly, we certainly have seen that this week. It was sometime Monday I received the report about the SBC Executive Committee and um, the list of 700 names and the protection of institution over the caring for people and... Um, want to uh, grieve that sin Paul tells us in 1st Corinthians 5 to grieve over sin and to say that we are we are vigilant that we have background checks uh, that we have training and that we uh, have a zero tolerance policy for um, for those uh, challenges that are recounted thankfully there were no Tallowood ministers on that list but we are not immune to sin we are not and so I grieved that and I thought this is what I will think about this week which was not a, uh, a happy prospect and then the news about Uvalde on the heels of Buffalo the church in California and I just uh, found myself praying and if you want to know more about my thoughts about that I welcome you to pick up our prayer meeting on this past Wednesday night that was fresh on my heart and my mind and and Jesus wept and we have wept this week and with Plantinga's 
title of his book, A Breviary of Sin, that subtitle, Not the Way Things Are Supposed to Be. So that's the way I think about our world today. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And I, I hope, people of God, that we will never become so deterministic in our theology that we think, well, this is inevitable. It is certainly true that pain and suffering and sin in our world are inevitable, but it is not true that every incidence of it is inevitable. That in fact, choices we make, people we love, decisions we make affect the lives of people and our own lives. And, and it is senseless to me to talk about 21 children and say somehow, well, it was their time. It was not their time. Manifestly, we say, well, it was the time they went home to be with the Lord. My point is it didn't have to be. It did not have to be. The things we do have consequences. And in the midst of this brokenness of um, ministerial uh, misconduct and abuse on the one hand with the SBC and, and um, our children, one who was likely in a classroom like that eight years ago, walking into a classroom, I am just reminded that we are not the first generation of Christians who have dealt with these kinds of challenges. Would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 34? We have not only to say something, but we have something to say today about the heart of worship as we come back to the table. So stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. And hear the word of the Lord today, beginning with verse 23, where Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Why? For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why. Many among you are weak and sick. A number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. 
so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You may remember that if you got a letter from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament time, that was not necessarily a good thing because that meant that he had to correct something about your church. Sometimes he writes a letter of thanksgiving, but most often he is dealing with some immediate problem that will not wait for his arrival, so he sends a letter. Just so we see in the first letter to the Corinthians, just to list a few problems, divisions over personalities he addresses early on, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or Peter, uh, some of casted pox on everybody's houses and said, I'm for Jesus, I'm not for any of those guys. And there's division in the body of Christ, and he challenges that. By the time we get to chapter 5, he is recognizing that there is sexual sin in the church, and the church is not doing anything about it. Does this sound familiar? That the church is puffed up, and they're not correcting. And this, I think, is what we see in that report that came out this week at a national level. Then he goes on to challenge them because they're taking each other to court to get their rights. And this leads him into a discussion about, about what foods are appropriate to eat. And we get the sense that everybody wants to claim their own rights. And so Paul has a pretty lengthy conversation where he says, so if my eating food causes another Christian to stumble. I won't eat that kind of food anymore for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm willing to surrender. For example, he says, meat for the rest of my life if by, by doing so I can help my brother or sister. And then we come finally and see that even the Lord's Supper, they don't get the Lord's Supper right. In fact, so much so that he says to them in an earlier passage, so when you're doing that, don't call that the Lord's Supper. What were they doing? Well, um, they probably ate the Lord's Supper in homes. We get the sense that it was part of a larger meal, and it turns out some people got off work early, likely the most wealthy. They went. Some of them got drunk by the time the others arrived. Others ate their fill, and by the time... Have you ever gone through one of those... uh, you know, those all-you-can-eat lines, but the person... You followed a preacher or something, and the person before you just took it all. And there, and there you got these empty, well, this is what they came to for the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, so whatever that is, that's not the Lord's Supper if you're not discerning the body of Christ, if you're not caring about each other. That's not really the Lord's Supper. And, and because they had a problem, we have the first teaching in the New Testament on the Lord's Supper. This predates the gospel accounts And Paul says, so I got this from the Lord. And essentially, he talks about about where we look when we do the Lord's Supper. He says, in summary, we, we see the story of Christ's death for us, so we look backward in commemoration in remembrance of me. We look upward in communion, connection with the Heavenly Father, finding forgiveness. We look inward in examination. We look outward in proclamation. We look forward in anticipation. And Paul really describes our hope until Christ comes. Things are not the way they're supposed to be in our world. And the Lord's Supper says, and they're not always going to be this way. 
And if the church today can move beyond the truncated gospel that says, I believe Jesus died for me and I'm going to heaven someday, and get to the truth that we are salt and we are light and we are here with God to begin to set things right in our world. If we can move beyond that, that simple, really truncated gospel that says it's just about me getting to heaven someday, we might see all heaven break loose on this earth if the people of God would be the people of God. And this is what's at stake in our preaching, in our teaching, in our partaking of the Lord's Supper. What's at stake is salt changes things. Light changes things. If we don't know that, we don't know salt and light. They change things. And when Christ transforms us, this is the hope of the world, the transforming work of Christ in his people who then become agents of transformation in the world by proclaiming Christ's death in anticipation and hope of the day that Christ will return. First, in the Lord's Supper, we worship by reenacting the story of redemption in the presence of the Redeemer. We're looking backward do this in remembrance of me. Specifically, the Lord's death, his redeeming death for us. I think in most churches I've served in and, and participated in, we probably understand that part better. The looking up in communion so that in this we are experiencing the real presence of Christ, I'm not sure we've gotten that down as well. Listen to William Barclay. The supper is a means not only of memory, but of living contact with Jesus Christ. So Robert Weber, who writes about ancient and future worship, calls us back to that doctrine of the Lord's Supper as the real presence of Christ. So some of us want to go back to the 16th century and say, Pastor, it's just the word. It's, this, is just, this, is, this is just a symbol. It's just the word. Some would go back to the 13th century. I think I did at the Co-Cathedral last Saturday night at my nephew's graduation when they said, you can't take pictures because we believe in transubstantiation, and this bread and this cup are going to become the actual body and blood of Jesus. And I found myself wondering, what do pictures have to do with that? Are we going to catch it on film? What, what, are, we, what are we saying but that is the 13th century, the Catholic Church. But I want to go back. You know, in the 16th century, they said, well, it's just a memorial supper or it's consubstantiation. Uh, Christ is somehow with all of this. But I want to go back to the first century and say it can't just... We can never say, well, it's just a symbol when we talk about baptism because symbols are symbolic because they symbolize something more important. Signs are important because they signify something significant. A couple of examples. When you see the United States flag, that is not our country. But to so many of us, it represents our country, right? And so we, we have that sense of this is important. And so we have ways of acknowledging that. Last night, again, one of those moments of joy, getting to be with the Pullen family and the wedding of Austin and Dallas. Isn't that a, isn't that, aren't those great names for a wedding? Austin and Dallas got married last night, and I had a front row seat. 
I'm, I'm going to stop right there before I say something, you know, about names of children or something. But listen, they had wedding rings, right? And wedding rings are beautiful. And, and, but um, when, they're, when they're just pictures there, I think we have a picture of just wedding rings. If, if they're just wedding rings, we look at them and go, well, that's great. You can see that in a jewelry store. But I'll tell you something. Last night, and for instance, when I was married 38 years ago this summer and when you were married, listen, when they put the ring on the finger, that means something different. It signifies something greater. It, it, it means something more. And this bread and this cup, he says, signify the remembrance of Christ's body and Christ's blood. So we look backward and remember, we look, we look upward in communion. And he says, the only way we know we're ready is if we look inward in examination. Let a person examine himself before. I was thinking of a, a theologian named McCoskey who who said there's lots of debate about how is Christ present in the bread and the drink. There's been arguments for 2,000 years about Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. But he said, I think the real question for us is our own presence. In what way am I present to this? And I'll confess to you after being a part of this since uh, I was baptized as a seven-year-old and then first partook of the Lord's Supper, that for me, in some ways... Um, it, it can become perfunctory. It's a, it becomes just a ritual. But if I understand Christ is here among us, transforming us by his grace into his people, and this is my chance to look at my own life, then I realize the second thought and last thought. In the Lord's Supper, we worship by revealing the truth about ourselves, about our sin, about our repenting, of our sin. When he first mentions the Lord's Supper, it's actually in the previous chapter in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, he says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood? We are participating in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Why? Because there's one loaf. We who are many are one loaf. We're one body. For we all share the one loaf. So, so here's the challenge. At that church, the rich were eating their full while the poor left hungry. And Paul says, this discernment of examining ourselves and we corporately, not you, not me, but we together proclaim the Lord's death reveals that the particular sin he's concerned about is the way that they are relating to each other. That in that church, for instance, there was a discrimination, much like the book of James, between the wealthy and the poor. Maybe you saw this meme this week when it said, when I was young, I was poor, but after decades of grueling, painstaking, hard work, I am no longer young. <laughs> I'm still poor, but I'm no longer young. Well, this is the, the plight of people in the first century and in our century and in the church of Jesus Christ. There's not to be a distinction between the, the wealthy and the poor, um, but, but rather we come together and we discern the body of Christ. That's what examining ourselves is about. Am I really recognizing the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ? In our reading of Proverbs, thank you for those of you who have joined me in this today. Day 29, a couple days ago, Proverbs 27, I challenged our seniors to do this with their new Bibles. 
Proverbs 27, 19, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. And so for me this week has been a time of saying to God, so what does my life say about my heart? Tallywood, what does our corporate life as a church say about our hearts? Again, in Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Your words, the way you look at people, the decisions you make each day. Listen to David Garland, who was the dean of our seminary at Truett. Now he's just writing commentaries like crazy. But he said, the divisions in Corinth that Paul mentions in 1119 reveal a deeper, far more serious side. Here's the difference. Um, can we put that up? Do we have that up? The divide is between those who incarnate the cross of Christ with their self-sacrifice. So I come to the Lord's Supper table caring about other people. I'm incarnating. I'm showing by the way I care about people that Jesus died for me. Or I'm putting Christ to death again with self-centered feasting. In other words, if I don't care about the people in our world, Jesus would say to us, if I can just use a colloquialism, you're killing me. You're killing me if you don't care about each other. That's what Paul was saying to the church at Corinth. And I remember E. Stanley Jones, one of my favorite missionaries, said everyone who belongs to Christ belongs to everyone who belongs to Christ. I saw this in a church when I was growing up. Um, probably my favorite church of the churches I was a member of growing up was a church called Rhine Valley. We didn't have a building like this, so we met uh, above a bar on a dance floor, which is an ironic place, I think, for Baptists to meet for church. But the Spirit of God came mightily on that church. And in that time, God called me to preach. And my pastor, we had this custom of having these uh, church-wide picnics, and we would all play softball. And, and then we would gather under the pine trees there in Germany. We would gather at picnic tables, and everybody would bring the food that they were going to eat. And we would we would all play together and, and worship together, but then when it came time to eat, we would just go to our separate tables. But while we were playing softball, our new pastor started meddling. He got a couple of the deacons, and they lined up all the tables, and people started to get nervous because some of them had hibachis, and they were eating steak or hamburgers, and some of us brought peanut butter and jelly. And our pastor had the audacity to say, so we're all eating together today. What does that mean, pray tell? So you bring your food, and I'll bring my food, and we'll all just share. And I just remember as a teenager, what a glorious moment that was, because we brought PBJs. <laughs> and everybody else had uh, amazing, amazing food, and we all got to eat together and share life together. Everyone who belongs to the body of Christ belongs to everyone else who belongs to the body of Christ. And so we look outward and we proclaim together. And then we look forward. We only do this until Christ comes because Christ will return. And when he returns, see, this is our hope. All the brokenness will be transformed. All that is old will be made new and the scripture says in revelation he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there'll be no more mourning or death or crying or pain for the old order 
of things has passed away, and he who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. And the hard part for us is to see how he's already at work doing that, that in the very eating of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming our hope to a world that feels like it's lost hope this week. And the truth is, there is grace in Christ, and we can be forgiven, and we do have something to offer to the world, and we really are salt, and we really are light, and if the people of God will be the people of God, believe me when I say, some of the things in the world that we now think of as inevitable, we will realize are not inevitable, because Christ changes the world through his people. This is the gospel we proclaim. This is the life we live as the body of Christ. My favorite um, scene in any movie, we were talking on our family vacation. What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite scene? So for me, Places in the Heart. Won the Academy Award, Sally Field, all that. But there's a scene in the movie early on where a young man has gotten drunk and he's playing with a gun and, and the sheriff who has just gotten out of church goes because he's called to go talk to the young man. He knows him. He's talking to the young man. The young man says, put the gun down. The young man starts to put the gun down. But while he's putting the gun down, the gun discharges and shoots the sheriff and kills him. And then the people in the town, because the young man um, has killed their sheriff and, and he's of a different race, and this is our neighbors as we love ourselves. And God, we look at our world and we know it's not what it's supposed to be. It's not even what it could be. And so, Lord, we come to you with gratitude for what Christ has done, confessing in things that we have done and the things we have left undone. We have sinned against you with words, with thoughts, and with actions. And we pray, Lord, that we will not eat this bread and drink this cup while we are still planning sin or living relationships of sin or Lord, help us, I pray, to release anger and forgiveness, to get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, to let no unwholesome word come out of our mouths. Father, we are Facebook warriors, not realizing that our words have sharp edges. Lord, we come to you. Where else can we go? Give us life again so that we may give life to others. In Jesus' name, amen.